Okay, good morning. Um, we're going to read a couple stories today, um, and then we'll start, we'll start with a couple stories today. So, um, in Acts chapter, uh, let's see here. In Acts chapter 18, uh, and in Exodus chapter uh, 17. I'm going to start in Exodus, but um, I'm going to meet you in, a, in, in Acts in a moment. Oh, hey. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for... Uh, for you, and we thank you, God, for um, your spirit in this place, and we want to welcome you and ask, God, that you would give us grace to humble ourselves and to ask, God, for your, for your wisdom and for your might and for your goodness uh, and for your love and for your counsel and, oh, God, for you, for you to just be with us this morning. As we stand here before you, Father, I just ask that you would teach us how to humble ourselves and to go lower and lower every single day to empty of ourselves everything, Lord, that separates from you and everything, God, that, um, that, that traps us, God, in fruitlessness, that traps us, God, in um, just the, the mire of, of, of life. Father, we just pray for a breakthrough this morning, and we want to pray, God, for a breakthrough of revelation inside in our hearts and our minds this morning in Jesus' name. Father, would you bless us? Would you cause the light of your face to shine upon us? Would you allow us, Lord, to enjoy the time that we have with you and the relationship we enjoy with you? And Father, would you cause us um, to pay attention to the wonderful promises you've given to us and not to ignore them and not, Lord, to think that we don't need them or we already have life figured out or um, any of the other silly things that we might think. But Father, I just pray that you would teach us humility and that you would teach us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I want to know you. The Sydney special. One of um, um, one of the uh, the main tools that God uses to teach us is called foreshadowing, um, which you're all very familiar with because you all took literature in in high school and uh, uh, and and foreshadowing is a very important literary tool, but it's also um, very importantly one of the the main ways that God teaches us, right? So in Romans chapter 15, verse four, Paul says, um, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's very interesting. And essentially, think about what he's saying, right? Like everything that is written in the Bible has been written for our instruction. Um, and the Bible has a lot of stories, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of stories in the Bible. It tells Lots and lots and lots and lots of stories. Lots of stories. Lots and lots and lots of stories. And how would a story be instructive to us unless it were applicable to us? And how would it be applicable to us unless it were, you know, a foreshadowing of things that actually happen in our own lives? 
In other words, like when God tells a story um, and it's recorded in the Bible, there's lots of events, like historical events, you know, that have happened since, you know, the dawn of time. Um, I happen to think that the stories that the Bible curates and are recorded for us have been done so specifically because each and every single one of them mirrors the experience of every generation in Christ. Does that make any sense? Um, hopefully it does. I, I don't. I, I don't mean that to be some like what. Like I, I, I hope that makes a lot of sense. That like that these things are here so that we can learn from them. The writers um, of, of the New Testament in particular, also the Old Testament, but the writers of the New Testament in particular use foreshadowing as a, um, as, as a, uh, a um, very important way that they would argue points and make points and, and ref- refer to what God done before and the continuity of God and his consistency and things like that. And, um, and Jesus does as well, which is very interesting. For instance, Jesus says, um, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth, Right? And now that's very interesting. Jesus could just said like the Son of Man is going to be in the earth three days and three nights. Like it's not like that. That, that would have been actually a shorter and more brief statement, um, an easier one for him to make. And um, and Jesus doesn't need to refer to anybody. But it's very interesting that he refers to the experience of Jonah as a foreshadowing of. He's essentially saying what Jonah experienced. Now, if you read the story of Jonah, you don't necessarily think, oh, this is obviously foreshadowing. You're saying, oh, Jonah, poor guy, should just listen to God the first time around. Um, but, uh, but, but Jesus very specifically points to the story of Jonah and tells us that this is a foreshadowing of what he would experience, right? And that's, that's an intentional thing. Like, he didn't have to do that. It, it's, it's an intentional thing. All right. So it, it, this, it's a very important um, a teaching device. And so when you read the stories of the Bible, um, I think it's always incumbent upon you to ask yourself, how does this um, relate to, or how, well, like, what is God trying to teach me about my life through this story? Does that make any sense? And, and sometimes, like, the lessons are very obvious. Like, you know, Elijah calls down fire from heaven. I mean, that just tells you, if you have an enemy, call down fire from heaven. That was a joke. That's, oh, come on. Fine. Fine, fine, fine. That is not the lesson. Do not, um, but, but, um, but they're all written for instruction. The story that's referred to um, perhaps the most as a source of foreshadowing by the New Testament writers is the story of, of the Exodus. And every single part, essentially, of the Exodus story is repeated in the New Testament in just in a different way. And um, so it's, it's incredible, right? For instance, the Passover lamb. Well, who's that? Who's that? Oh, come on. This is, like, come on. Like, what do, what do you, come on. Like, yes, of course. That's, that's, that's Jesus. He's a, you know, the first thing that, that is said about him by any man in the scriptures is when John the Baptist sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the Passover Lamb. And the entire institution of the Passover Lamb is, it was, was, was designed around, I, I mean, I, I, I think that like the Passover Lamb, God gave them the Passover Lamb. They didn't need the Lamb, like the blood of lambs. They gave them Passover Lamb to point to the way that Jesus will be a fulfillment of that is a very, it's a very interesting fulfillment. Did you know that the way that they celebrated Passover, um, the, the, there would be one lamb, right? And it would be spotless. And that would be the Passover lamb. They, they would all sacri- they would sacrifice, high priest sacrifice every year. And they would bring the lamb out to the, to the altar at 9 a.m. in the morning. And the lamb would stay there for everyone to see it. And then at 3 p.m., the lamb would be killed. Did you know that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m.? And he hung on the cross until 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m. He, 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 he died. Like, on Passover, on Passover, like, on Passover. 
Um, so like it, it's it's not just a a suggestion. Like it's not just like well, you know, these things sort of seem similar. It's not that at all. It's like it's a very intentional way in which God introduces ideas early on, and then he the continuity of these ideas enforces their reinforces their significance. And um, there's a lot of things for us to learn through them. Um, so if you think about the Exodus story, right? So God does mighty signs and wonders, like, you know, through the hands of Moses, right, in Egypt, and he takes them out of Egypt, out of the kingdom of darkness, right? And, but he doesn't bring them immediately into the kingdom of light, into the promised land. There's an intermediate story of 40 years. And, and this intermediate time is, um, I'm going to just go ahead and suggest you, is a story of the Christian life. So what's the first thing that happens? The first thing that happens is that um, Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt, oh God, I gotta make sure I stay on time here. <laughs> the, the Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt come and they chase, the, they chase the people, right? And they chase the people like into the edge of the Red Sea. And then God splits open the Red Seas and the, and the people of Israel walk through the Red Sea, right? What is that? That's baptism, right? It Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, like he talks about the baptism by the cloud, of, of, um, by the cloud and by the, by the sea. Um, uh, of the baptism of Moses um, by the cloud and by the sea. And he's, he's just saying that like, that when the, the, the cloud by day led them to the Red Sea and they crossed through the Red Sea and that was the foreshadowing of baptism. In fact, the entire, I, I think perhaps the entire institution of baptism, the crossing into the water and then out of the water on the other side um, as the first thing that a Christian does in their Christian life, this is not the sort of thing mature Christians do. Like from the moment that you're like, I believe in Jesus, it's time to get baptized. It's not like, you know, let's wait until I'm 45 and, you know, really feel really good about this. <laughs> no, it's just like, you know, as Peter says, repent and be baptized. <laughs> and, you know, um, so it's the first thing, and it's the first thing that God leads the people of Israel. I mean, you just read the Exodus story. It's the first thing that God leads people of Israel into, right? And then, um, and then there's a few stories in between. We're going to read one of them. Um, there's the bread from heaven. Yeah, you need the bread from heaven, which is what? The word of God. Um, there's water from the rock, which, um, which, uh, which Paul, in, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, says the, the rock is Christ. And the water from the rock is, is the stream of life. So they ate the bread from heaven, they drank the water from the rock, and, um, and then there's a story that we're about to read in, in a moment. And then from there, God leads them to Mount Sinai where they receive the covenant. Paul says in Galatians that Sinai is a representation of the old covenant, the covenant of the law of slavery. But we have a better covenant now, which is the covenant of grace and the, you know, all the things that, that we enjoy in the New Testament. But Sinai, it's, and then so it's the, 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 the bread from heaven, the, the water out of the rock, um, and then it's the, the battle of the Amalekites, which is what we're gonna read in a moment. And then um, they go to Mount Sinai, they receive the covenant um, uh, uh, of the Lord, um, you know, the, the experience of, the, let's call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, just, you know, for us Pentecostals, and, um, which I'm not, but I'm just, I'm simple, I'm, um, I'm just living vicariously through my Pentecostal friends. So, so the baptism, I'm just kidding. We believe in baptism. So baptism is the Holy Spirit. And then from there, um, God leads them um, into, uh, um, to the edge of the river um, uh, where they could cross in the promise. And they don't because of, of fear. Um, and we're going to talk about that um, in a moment, how that is a foreshadowing. Um, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. And then, um, uh, and then uh, 40 years later, the next generation is going to the promise. Okay, all right. The story that we're going to read today is, um, is the story of the battle uh, between Israel um, and, um, Alma, uh, uh, and the Amalekites. All right. um, and uh, th like I said, there are three events between the baptism of the Red Sea and the, um, and the meeting at Mount Sinai. There's the bread from heaven, there's the water out of the rock. Paul tells us what both of those things mean. 
And then there's the Battle of the Amalekites, which he doesn't tell us what it means, except that it's not that difficult to figure out. So in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. And so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. With the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, so that I would utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay. There are three types of wars that the people of Israel fight that God leads them into. Um, uh, Amalek represents the first type, and then there's two more types, which we're not going to get into today, but, but let's just talk about the first type. Um, the Amalekites, uh, in, in uh, this portion of Scripture, um, they later fight the Amalekites uh, in the land of Canaan. But in this portion of Scripture, the Amalekites are a nomadic tribe. And they're essentially just, they, they ride around and they take advantage of people. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, I th- think... It's Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's Deuteronomy chapter something in the 20s. Moses is, tell, um, is reciting, is recounting this experience that they had with the Amalekites. And he says, this is what happened. He says that they picked off the ones that were weak and the ones that were sick and the ones that were straggling behind. So the, the Amalekites are, are predators and they prey upon the weakest. They preyed upon the weakest in the camp of the Israelites. The Israelites were like a very large camp, right? And as you would when you're moving into the very larger group of people, like there were some stragglers and there were some sick people and there were some, some people that were just weaker than everybody else. And the Amalekites came and they picked those people off and they stole their stuff and they killed them. And then the, uh, the Amalekites um, decided to try to attack the main camp of of the Israelites to prevent them from reaching um, the oasis that was in the desert that, um, that it seems like God was leading the people to. And, uh, and so it's at this point um, that God uh, gives Moses instruction um, to, to fight the Amalekites. And, uh, and so they're the first type of enemy. So it's, it's, a nomadic, it's, it's nomadic enemy against nomadic people of God. And there's a second type, which is nomadic people of God against, um, against a permanently established enemy. So um, where the people of God are warring against um, enemies on their home turf. Like the Amalekites didn't own this territory. They're just riding out. They're just taking advantage of weaklings, like, you know, people that can be taken advantage of, um, like the Huns, you know. Um, but, but, um, but, but then the people of Israel later on in this, um, uh, in this story, um, after Mount Sinai, God um, uh, uh, assigns the people of Israel to go into, um, uh, into, they have to cross different enemy territories to get to Canaan. Um, and so God gives them instructions. Sometimes he has them go around, but, but sometimes he just has them, um, he, he insists that they will cross, and then if they're not, allowed to go across, then, then, then they fight. Um, and then the third type is where they go into Canaan, and, um, and, uh, and this third type, because the enemy is deeply entrenched, but God desires for you to possess land, and so it's a very different type of war, because now we're not fighting so that we, can, we have the right to cross. We're fighting so that we have the right to possess. 
Does that make any sense? So there's like, there's three different types of battles that they fight actually. And each and every single one of them, this is not about um, normal, natural human war. This is about, you know, the, the way that spiritual warfare works. This is not, it's not, all of these in the New Testament, every single um, aspect of the story of Exodus, there's a spiritual, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of spiritual events um, that occur in the New Testament, the journey of the people of God in the New Testament. Is that, okay, all right. So this is the first type. This is the first type of battle that, that you, um, that you deal with is when the enemy, they, they sweep in like a bunch of marauders and, and they pick up, begin to pick off the weak ones. And then they, they gather around you, begin to, begin to attack the main camp of the enemy. And this is the weakest form of enemy, but this is, this is the first mention of warfare uh, uh, um, by the people of God. And it's the training grounds upon which the people become an army so they can later engage in warfare with, with more entrenched enemies in their place. This story is very interesting for um, so many different reasons. It's not very difficult to establish some of the primary facts, okay? So Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So the story places the blame on the battle for um, on Amalek, right? So point number one is that you don't need to go find the enemy. They're going to find you. And more specifically, they're going to find the weakest ones among you, and they're going to pick them off. And then at some point, you're going to get tired of the enemy picking off the weak ones among you, and then you're going to be like... It's on, baby. Like, you know, so, so that's what they did. And so then Moses said to Joshua, you know that Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua. This, okay, the, like, it's not that, it's okay. So, so Mo, okay, all right, okay. So Moses goes up to the mountain to pray and Jesus leads the army in fighting against the Amalekites. Oh, this is like, this is very hard. This is not meant to be very hard. Okay, all right. Um, so tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with uh, Amalek while Moses and Aaron and her went to the top of the hill. Um, you remember when God previously delivered the people of Israel out of the, um, from the army of Pharaoh? Do you remember what God said to them? He said, just stand and watch the salvation of the Lord. He says, don't do anything. Watch the salvation of the Lord. In this instance, though, now the table is turned. And he says, Joshua, choose men from among yourselves and go down and fight. In other words, this deliverance is not going to come by you standing around and asking for God to give you victory. It's your turn to go and pick up your sword and fight. That's how this victory comes. And God could have done it any other way, but it's, it, but you understand, but, but he said, that's not the way we're doing it. The way we're doing it is that you're raising an army and you're going down with foot soldiers and you're going to fight. And so the people split into two, right? The army went down with Joshua and picked up their swords and they went to fight. And then Moses and Aaron and her, the apostle, the priest, and her's role is not that clear, but he's, um, uh, um, I don't want to get distracted by who her was or what he represents, but, but Moses, Aaron, and her go up to the mountain to pray. So you send a contingent of your intercessors to go up to the mountain to pray, and then you send your soldiers into the field with their swords to go and fight. And the Bible says that as long as Moses held up his staff, and as long as he sustained his prayer, we're just, we're being, you know, we're, you know, whatever, we're translating now, right? As long as his prayers sustained, as long as he didn't quit, Joshua was winning on the field. And as soon as he stopped, as soon as he lowered his hands, Joshua began to lose. Um, the type of victory that comes through prayer is not like, I prayed once. It's like, people are like, did you pray? You're like, yeah, I prayed. 
That, that's, not the kind of, that's not the kind of prayer that brings victory. It's, it's, it's that prayer that just doesn't, that doesn't cease. And so then the story explains why there are three of them on the mountain, right? Because, because Moses had the responsibility of holding up the staff, but his hands got tired. And when his hands got tired, Aaron and her brought him a chair. And he said, hey, Moses, sit down. And then they, they stood around him. They were like, hold up his hands. Like, you know, make sure that, that Moses does not stop praying. It's not a one, prayer is not the responsibility of one man. Like, we have to learn how to hold up one another in the place of prayer. Because without that place, the best soldiers in the world will not win this battle. It, it's like, do you know, you need both. You need people on the ground. And then you need people on the mountain. And the people on the mountain can't quit. If the people on the mountain quit, the people on the ground can't win. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle does not belong to whoever has the sharpest sword. The battle belongs to the Lord. The, the, but the battle belongs to the Lord in such a way. It, you know, God doesn't have to do it this way, but he chooses to do it this way. So we have to understand, right? Like it's not, he's not forced to. He could just bring deliverance for whatever way he wants to bring deliverance. But he chooses to bring deliverance this way. That as long as you lift up your staff, you win. And as soon as you stop lifting up your staff, you lose. And I get it. Like, it seems weird. Like, God, you don't need my prayers. Like, I mean, come on, God, you could do anything. Like, you don't need anybody to pray. You don't need us to fast. Like, why do we bother praying and fasting? But the fact is that this is the model of warfare. This is the model of warfare. This is the model of warfare. Do you know this is the first time that Josh was named in the Bible? And he's just sort of like very, like, you know, there's no, like, he's just like, you know, Joshua, pick some soldiers, go down and fight. Like, this is, and Joshua's like, yep, I will. <laughs> you know, grab the sword, he picks the guys, he goes down and fight. It's a wonderful thing, right? And so Moses needed to lift up his staff from the beginning of the battle until the sun went down, which is a very long time to be lifting up your staff, like a very long time. But the Bible says that because he lifted up his staff until the going down of the sun, Joshua prevailed and overwhelmed the Amalekites and they had a great victory. Yeah? Now comes something that's just as interesting. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under the heaven. Did you know this is the first time in the Bible that the Lord commands someone to write down something that he had done? This happens before, before the Ten Commandments is given. The first thing that God commands anyone to write down in a book is the story of this battle. So he's write it down and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And he says, tell him this. God says, I will utterly blot out the Amalekites. And this is interesting because there's lots of Amalekites and they fight them from generation to generation. For hundreds of years, they fight the Amalekites in all sorts of different places and all sorts of different times. The, it just seems like the Amalekites are like those termites you can't get rid of. Like, they just keep popping up and up and up. But from this moment, God decided that he was going to blot out the Amalekites, but he wasn't going to do it sovereignly. He was going to allow you and I... Or, sorry, who's going to allow the Israelites from generation to generation to find groups of the Amalekites and, and destroy them everywhere he found them. And Moses built an altar. What's an altar? That's a place where you sacrifice, a place where you worship. In the field of battle, this is also, I don't know if you know, the first altar that Moses built. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. You know what your banner is, right? I mean, I don't know if you have one, but like the banner is the thing that you fly when you go out to battle. That was the altar. That, that's the altar that God asked Moses to build. God said, build an altar 
and put on it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is the one that is waving over me as I go out to fight my, the war. It, like, it's not, you know, you don't have to be all like, okay. And, and saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay. Uh, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. It's, it's like when there's a throne of God, you don't touch the throne of God because it's holy. And Amalek, by molesting the people of God, put a hand on the throne of God. He touched the holy, the holy things of God. Not allowed to do that. And, um, and, uh, and, and he, he's like molesting. It's, it's just like what Lucifer tried to do. He was like, I don't want God. <laughs> I'm going to be equal to God. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be above it all. Like No one's going to tell me what to do. Did you know that the motto of the church of Satan is not Satan is king? It's do whatever you want. Do what thou wilt is the motto of the church of Satan. That is their, that, like, that, that's their, their, their motto. Do whatever you think is right. And Amalek, what God had a problem with Amalek is that Amalek did not respect the throne of God and he said to put a hand on it. And for that reason, God said he's going to blot out the memory of Amalek from generation to generation. He's going to hunt them down until there's no more. And he's using the people of God to do it. Not by miracles, but with swords and by prayer. The model of all warfare, natural warfare, spiritual warfare, it's all the same. You win in prayer and you send your soldiers out to fight. You put good swords in their hands, but they know, they know they need to go out, but they know they can't win. <laughs> Unless the place of prayer is sustained. And, and that's why, like, you know, like, like places like IHOP and, and, and like prayer rooms, or just really anybody that is like pushing, you know, the agenda of, of, of winning through prayer, like, is important. It, it's not because that alone gets the job done. It does not alone get the job done. Joshua still had to pick men. He still had to go down and fight. Like, God was not sending a, um, a storm or a fire or snakes. Like, like, you know, he wasn't sending those things. He was sending, his own people had to go out and fight. But, like, you still need that. But you need to prevail in the place of prayer like you know while you're as you're doing that do you know like like so you, you, got, you got to do both you got to do both all right um from there they go to Sinai and then after Sinai they cross over and they they, they, get, they get to the river that's right on the other side of, of of the promised land and then um all along the way there's there's um they they're fighting different wars the entire rest of the story of Exodus is that they're fighting wars oh and there's revolts in the camp and the rebellions and things of that sort and God sends snakes to bite the rebels and then most anyways this is a lot all sorts of a lot of the, the stories from here on out um until the end of Exodus it's all they're just they're, they're Moses is dealing with two things on the one hand he's dealing with the revolt and the rebellion of the people inside the camp and on the other hand josh was leading the people um in war against various uh, uh camps and they said we're not we don't have time to go through all those stories um i'm not prepared to go through all those stories anyway i don't know anything about most of them <laughs> but um but that's what happens okay now here's the interesting thing they get to the edge of the river right moses sends 12 spies do you remember that into the into the promised land okay and um the the, the spies come back joshua and caleb um, do you know that Caleb, I think, is he's either the son or the, 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 the father, but I think he's the son. Do you know that Caleb is the son of her, the guy that held up Moses' hand along with Aaron? Okay, so Joshua and Caleb, their 12 spies go out. Joshua and Caleb come back. They're, they all come back. And they said, um, the, uh, the, son of, the sons of Anak, the, the, the Nephilim, are in the promised land. And this, it's not the time today to talk about the Nephilim. <laughs> But the Nephilim are the, the, the Nephilim are giant creatures. Anyways, there's no time to talk about the Nephilim. They were giants. They were, they were like they were giants in the land. They were bigger than, more powerful than the Israelites. 
And the 10 spies said, with all reason and ration on their side, we can't beat them. And Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, we can't. Like, they're big, they're strong. I'm not denying that, but God's on our side. And because the people of Israel were scared to go up against the sons of Anak and, and the Nephilim, who were more powerful than they, um, God delayed them in the wilderness for 38 years. The part of the story that may not be actually that obvious to you, unless you know um, ancient Near East history, is that um, uh, it looks like all natural wars, but it's actually not at all. It's, it's spiritual wars. Um, in the ancient um, uh, empires, everybody believed, everybody believed that every war was a spiritual war, not a natural war. And so if you are, um, if you, uh, are the Assyrians and you take over an enemy, th- that enemy would begin to worship your God because the belief was that your God was greater than their God. And that's not like... That's not like, you know, that's just very well known, like total, that's just like, that's just what everybody, that's what everybody knew, what everybody believed. Nobody believed that wars were natural wars. Everybody believed that wars were spiritual wars. And so whenever the Bible talks about the people of God going to battle against an enemy tribe or an enemy nation or anything like that, they were not going out to battle like man against man. It, it's a spiritual war. And every, um, uh, every tribe and every, every uh, nation that they went up against had their own spiritual powers, occultic practices. Um, and um, that's why in the Old Testament law, God makes very specific, makes a huge list of things that you're not allowed to do. Um, and the, the reason is because each and every single one of those things are the things that the enemy did to gain greater spiritual power to fight against the Israelites, and they all lost because, because God was with them. But, but when you're looking at the power that they had and their ability to, I mean, they were, they were giants and the, you know, the ability to do different things, which I'm not going to talk about now, um, but their ability to do different things, it would seem really scary. Like, they have a lot of power. But the, the, the story is that even though they had a lot of power, and God said, you guys are not allowed to touch any of that. You're not allowed to touch any of that. You didn't get to touch secret arts or magic or any of that stuff. But, but like by prayer and by faithfulness to God and by simple obedience, God brought them victory time after time after time after time. And Joshua and Caleb remembered that. They remembered that and they said, oh, God, let us beat those guys. God can let us beat these guys. But the other 10 scribes said, oh, no, 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 no. They're way too much. They're way too powerful. Do you see how tall they are? Do you see how strong they are? Do you see, have you heard the stories of the legends of their conquests? And uh, for that reason, God delayed the people of Israel another 38 years, and that generation didn't get to go into the promised land. That generation did not get to go to the promised land. Why? Because they didn't want to fight the enemy. They did not want to go to war. So they didn't take the promised land. They didn't want to go to war. It wasn't that they didn't want to worship. It wasn't that they didn't want to tithe. It wasn't that they didn't want to read their Bible. Because they did not want to go to war because they saw that the enemy was very great. Alrighty then. Still on time. Ooh, actually, I'm drifting. <laughs> Gotta do this one faster, okay. Exodus chapter 18, Woo. Lord, okay. Exodus chapter 18 and Exodus chapter 19 is a story of the ministry of Paul and some of the early apostles at Ephesus. Ephesus um, is, uh, to me, um, perhaps uh, the story in the book of Acts that is most uh, helpful when understanding the, um, what it means um, to take enemy territory. 
There's a few different parts of the story, so let's go ahead and read them all. Um, Acts chapter 18, starting in verse uh, 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Caesarea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And then he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay at a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And, um, uh, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who grace who had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, the first two things that happens in the story of Ephesus is that Paul first lands there, and it's very possible there were other people that made it there before him, but the place where the book of Acts picks up the story is that Paul lands there with his friends, um, Priscilla and Aquila. When they get to Ephesus, um, Priscilla and Aquila are off. Um, Priscilla and Aquila eventually become residents of, Efe- of Ephesus. I, this may be the time they went there. I don't know. Maybe they lived there before. But Priscilla and Aquila are natives, and they eventually plant a church in Ephesus and become the church leaders in the city of Ephesus. Um, but Paul leaves them. Um, Priscilla and Aquila go doing their own thing. Um, and then Paul goes into the synagogue where the Jews are, and then he begins to debate with the Jews. And he debates there for a, a, a few days, and it doesn't seem like he actually gets very much breakthrough by debating with the Jews. Um, and so he leaves, and he sails off. And after he leaves, Apollos, who was a very well-known uh, preacher in the early church, comes to Ephesus. And Apollos is not baptized in the Holy Spirit. He only knows the baptism of John, okay? But he's a very wonderful speaker. He's been gifted by God. He has a wonderful spirit. He loves, I mean, he loves Jesus. He's speaking the gospel, but he's not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know the power of God, that he's preaching out of the baptism of John. And so he goes, and, and he, like, he's very persuasive, he's very convincing, and, um, and, um, and he says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing that by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So Paul um, debated with the Jews in the synagogue and didn't have that much success, it seems, and then Apollos was just a much better speaker. And so he came into the public, and then he began to argue with the Jews in public, and he was just, he was just better. He was just better, a better preacher than Paul was. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, some people think that Paul's Superman. He's not. He was, he's, he, um, he was a wonderful, 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 wonderful man. Extraordinary. But there were actually people better than him in different things as is always the case in the world. Um, and Apollos is a better preacher, and especially a better public speaker and a better debater. And um, so Apollos brings the Jews out into public, and he, uh, like, he argues with them in public, and he wins convincingly in public. But he didn't have the power. And then so Apollos then goes to Corinth, and that's where we pick up in chapter 19, where Paul comes back to Ephesus. Now that Apollos is... I don't know, like maybe shoveled a little bit more of the dirt around. Paul's ready to do some major church planting work in Ephesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And they, um, and, uh, and, um, sorry. Uh, and, and they said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And that, that's what Apollos did, is he baptized him into John's baptism because he didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and they said into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And when hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So after the ministry of Apollos, Paul comes back to Ephesus, and he discovers that there are 12 believers, and they believe the things that are true. They believe the gospel. But they don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar? Anyways, all right. And so Paul says, what are you baptizing to? Oh, into the baptism of John. He said, okay, but John said there's something better that's coming. You're like, that's okay. I'm just gonna, there's no point. All right, there's no point. There's no point. So they believe what Paul's preaching. Paul lays hands on them. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit comes under the, so the, now, now there's 12 Ephesus natives, plus Priscilla and Aquila and Paul in Ephesus. 15 people, right? You've got a small church going. Verse 8. And he entered into the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the halls of Tyrannus. And this he continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is very, very, very interesting. This is what happened. So Paul is at Ephesus with 15 people, and he has a small church, and he wants to make it a bigger church. And he goes into the synagogue and continues to argue with the Jews every single day, but they become stubborn, and they become prideful. And then they begin to speak evil of Paul, begin to speak evil of the gospel and turn against him because they don't like Paul, and they don't believe him, and they just want to believe what they want to believe. And as a result, Paul leaves this area, and he moves his church from Ephesus to the halls of Tyrannus, which is maybe a different part of Ephesus, maybe outside of Ephesus. I'm not entirely sure. I don't think that anybody really knows. But Paul moved his church from where it was to the halls of Tyrannus so that he could get away from those evil, evil and stubborn people. In other words, he's kind of lost. Like, he didn't win that, that battle. And he, then he did this for two years. He went to the hall of Tyrannus and he began to argue with them, you know, debate with them and preach them for two years. This continued for two years. So all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Sometimes the way to get your message out is just to preach for a very long time. All right. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those with evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom there was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also, many of those who are now um, believers came, confessing and divulging their, seek, their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now we get a better hint of what is going on in the city. Ephesus is a center of occultic activity. And the opposition that Paul faces, which he experienced as stubbornness and pride, was actually the work of the occult in that city. 
And so what happens is that Paul withdraws from the area in which he faces his major warfare to the halls of Tyrannus and preaches there. And out of that place, the power upon Paul's ministry grows. So the Bible says that God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is very interesting. So it's like there are miracles and there are extraordinary miracles. Um, I, I think at least right now, would be happy just to have miracles. <laughs> Extraordinary will come later, I guess. But like, for, let's start with miracles. But, but Paul, after two years of preaching, the halls of Tyrannus, away from the people that rejected him, began to experience extraordinary miracles. And the miracles were extraordinary in, in this sense. This is very interesting. So even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. That's incredible. If it got anywhere near Paul, it had the power to heal the sick and cast out evil spirits. He didn't need to yell at them. That's always amazing, because, you know, like, he didn't have to yell at them. Okay. And then, here, this, okay, so then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, right, so they did that, and then they fail, right? Seven sons of Sceva, they fail. The evil spirit says to him, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, who are you? And that's very interesting, right? Because it, it means it's not just, you, you don't just get to use his name because, you know, you, you know who he is. And, um, and th- that, that's very awesome. Not a lesson for today. But when the miracles begin to happen, when Paul decamps his other place and he, and he builds this miracle working ability, the miracles begin to happen. And uh, the miracles begin to happen, and oh, I gotta, I gotta move it along. Miracles begin to happen, people get, get healed, and people get freed from demonic spirits, and then all of a sudden the Bible says that many begin to believe. And this is what a lot of preachers call the revival of Ephesus. It's this period where many begin to believe because of the extraordinary miracles that were pouring out of the, the, um, the ministry of Paul. But the story's not over yet. But, but this, is, this is the intermediate stage of the story. And so many begin to believe. And as they believe, they begin to renounce the dark arts, the occultic arts, right? And so that there were enough people that believed that when they brought just their magic books... You have to remember that in that day, books were very valuable. It's not like today you go to Amazon and, you know, $7.99, you can buy a handbook to magic. It's not like that. This was before the printing press. Books were extremely, extremely, extremely valuable. And these people brought a massive collection of, of occultic books, and they put them on public square, and they burnt all of it. So that it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. This is how the occult had infiltrated the city of Ephesus. And this is why when Paul tried to build a presence in the city of Ephesus and to build a church in the beginning, he was rebuffed several times. The first time he landed, you remember, he argued with a few, gave up, he left. And the second time he came, he, he got 15 people baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then they, like, they didn't want him. They kicked him out. It's not because they were stubborn or evil. It's because of the presence of the occult in that city that Paul did not have power over until God released extraordinary miracles into his life and he could heal the sick and cast out demons in large numbers. All right? So then they did that. Now, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there is no little um, uh, disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may go into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even disposed of in her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
Artemis is the principality over Asia and over that part of the Roman Empire. And when they heard that they were enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and the Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, one another, and the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not even know why they had come together. So the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two, um, two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, so the town clerk quieted the crowd and said, men of Ephesus, I'm reading really fast because I have to, I have to get going here. Okay, so sorry. And the town clerk quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that this city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, and seeing men that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our godless. And if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen have with him a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so Paul has now... Um, uh, brought a quote-unquote revival to Ephesus. I don't, re I don't know how many people this is, but they brought a great, 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 great many witchcraft books, evidently. So it must have been a good number of people. Now, um, he did miracles, and he cast out demons, but he did not deal with the principality. And because he did not deal with the principality, when the church began to grow, the worshipers of this principality stirred up a mob to stop the move of God. And this goddess, um, uh, Artemis, who is also called Diana, for those of you that are fans of Wonder Woman, Roman Diana, Greek Artemis, is the god of the hunt, the god of wild animals, the goddess of wild animals. And her power is to bring confusion. And I know that because that's what happens to her crowd. This is not an organized effort to get rid of Paul. This is a spirit of confusion, a power of confusion that overwhelms the people of the city. And so this, great, this Demetrius is trying to stir up this revolt to get rid of Paul. And what happens is there is a demonic power that is adding confusion to the mess. So they're not like of one accord, like you, you read the story, right? Some are shouting one thing, somebody's shouting the other thing. Everybody's like, greatest Artemis, greatest Artemis. And they can't agree on what the heck is going on. They, have no, like, they don't even know. I mean, do we like Paul? Not like Paul, we're trying to get rid of. Who are we trying to get rid of? Um, nobody has any idea what we're doing. But in the confusion, there's a chaos. And in the chaos, the work of God cannot continue. And as long as the power of chaos remains in this city, the work of God is not able to grow further. Like, it's just, it's kind of like at a standstill. So this is very interesting. By, the, by miracles and casting out demons, Paul's able to bring about a certain amount of salvation and a certain amount of church growth out of the city. But then it stalls because the principality has not been brought down. The temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus is one of the seven, um, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this story actually tells you a lot about it. There's also ancient texts that talk about it. The, 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 the idol, the statue of Artemis is 425 feet high. It took them 200 years to create it. And at its base is, they say, a rock that fell out of the sky, which could be a meteorite. It could be an alien artifact. No one has any clothes. But it has real spiritual power. And, and for hundreds of years, this is like, this is what the city of Ephesus is known for. 
And she was so significant that everybody in the entire region worshipped her. And Paul did not, I don't know if he wasn't able, I don't know if God didn't call him to, I, I don't know any of, I don't, I'm, I'm not, this is not, this, you understand, we're not saying anything bad about Paul. We love Paul. But, but, but he didn't deal, the, the, the way the story goes, he didn't deal with the principality. And because he didn't deal with the principality, and because the principality's power is confusion, she was able to bring confusion into the city to stir up mobs and to create chaos in the church um, in the streets so that Paul could not get victory. Paul wanted to rush in the temple and be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, but, but the people were like, don't go into the temple. That is, a, that is a principality of chaos in there. Do not go in there. And so Paul was saved. But his companions got dragged into the temple and they would have been killed if the, if the principality could get her people organized. But she couldn't get her people organized because she's a god of confusion. And in their confusion... <laughs> They, they stop the work of God, but they, you know, anyways. Okay, does that make any sense? Does that, like, make sense? Does that not make sense? There's a, a story that's not in the Bible. It's in um, an apocryphal source called the, um, the Acts of John. Eventually, Ephesus becomes the most significant church of, of, the, of the ancient world. And uh, Timothy is, is said to be the first um, kind of bishop of Ephesus in the generation after Paul. And at the end of Timothy's ministry, there's 100,000 people, members of the church of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus has been turned completely, utterly upside down. This has not happened in Paul's lifetime. This happened in Timothy's lifetime. And in order for that to have happened, the principality needed to come down. There's a story an apocryphal source called, um, called the Acts of John, which is not in the Bible, so I cannot tell you definitively this has happened. But the story goes like this, and it, 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 scholars believe this was written in the second century. And it's a very significant story. It goes like this. John, who later ministers in Ephesus after Paul, um, John sets up base in Ephesus and ministers out of that area. He's ministering in the city. He's doing what Paul did. He did great signs and great wonders and raised people from the dead and, and did these different things. And, and, and one day, um, the people are, have the exact same thing. They're, they like stir up a mob against the ministry of John. So John gets fed up. He goes to the temple of, of, of Artemis and he stands there and he yells at the people. He said, if your God is powerful, have her strike me down. And, um, and, 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 and the proud was like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you know? <laughs> Because you're blasphemy. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and the, the priest of Artemis is there and nobody's able to strike John down. And so John says, fine, if your God cannot strike me down, then I will strike you down by the power of God because you guys are all you know, ignorant. And, and I mean, you know, John, everybody's like, John is nice. John, you know, he's all feisty. He's all feisty. I will strike you down by the power of God. And he's about to invoke the power of God against the people because they're just stirring up a mob against him and, and, and not allowing him to proceed in his ministry. And, and suddenly... The, the foundation of the temple of Artemis cracks um, and it breaks into like a bunch of different pieces and the, the altar comes falling down and the, the, the temple comes falling down and, and then the whole thing just implodes. Like, like he's standing there, he's challenging the people, Elijah style, and the temple just like, and everybody's saying that, oh, and, and then after the temple comes down, they're like, okay, we're Christians now. And from that time, I, I don't know for historical fact that this happened. What I do know is that the temple of Artemis was destroyed in the ancient world. And nobody else has a good story about how it came down. Because this is a massive structure. Like, it's, so I don't, know if, I, I, I don't know if this actually happened. I just know that nobody has an alternative story who would, you know, to explain how it came down. But this is what, I mean, what, the, what they said. I, 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 I tend to believe that something like this happened um, 
Because I know what, because we know through church history what happened in the church of Ephesus, and I'm fairly confident it would not have happened if the principality had not come down. And, and the important part about the story, I think, in the way that this is told, is that even though you can have very good success with signs and wonders, if you do not address the, 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 the spiritual power, the dominant God or goddess that is being worshipped, that did you understand? Like, you cannot have the sort of transformative, reviving, like, take over the whole city kind of work that, like, we're all praying for. And, like, I mean, come on, like, pretty much every church in America, I mean, how many churches in this city are praying that God would, like, sweep through the city? It's not just, like, we're not unique in that way. I think there's a lot, I mean, maybe some aren't, but, like, but I think there are a lot that are. But you can't have that if you don't deal with the Temple of Artemis in your city. And every city has one. And it's not that like, it's not that like, well, where is the city of Artemis? Where is that? Where is that? Very often there is literally a physical embodiment of that thing. Very often. And in this case, in the next generation, Ephesus became, as I said, the, by far the most significant church in the early church. Um, by that time, Alexander's also in the church and other things. But I mean, if the rumors are true that there were 100,000 people at the church of Ephesus, by the end of Timothy's ministry, the principality must have come down. And I, I, I believe, anyway. And, um, and uh, make sense? I think so. One last story, and then I'll be done. Whew, sorry, I've been loud. I just get excited. Whenever I talk to Esther, I get loud. And she said, don't yell at me. I'm like, I'm like, I just, I just get excited. Just, this is how I talk. I'm not angry at anyone. I'm just, this is how I talk. <laughs> yeah, that's good. There's a, there's a, um, a German um, uh, Lutheran um, preacher. His name is um, uh, Johann Blumhardt. Has anybody heard that name? Okay, he's very famous, even today in Germany. Um, in the, the mid-1800s, he took over the parish of a small town named Motlingen in the Black Forest uh, in, in Germany. And, uh, and in that town, he experienced perhaps the most famous case of exorcism in the history of the German church, but also one of the most stirring cases of genuine revival in the church. And I, I want to tell you this story and skip some of the details because they're kind of gruesome um, and they're not really important for, for most of you that are here. Um, but what, it, it's, it's an extraordinary story. So uh, so um, Johann took over this church when he was uh, 33 years old. He was brought in um, to be to be priest uh, of this church. And I, I think he was Lutheran. I'm, I'm not completely sure. I think he was Lutheran. And it was a fairly normal church, and he was a young man with a young family, got his fiance. They were going to get married. They were going to start a family, and he was excited to do that. This is his first church. Um, and in the, in, in the city, there was, a, there was a family of orphans. There were two brothers and three sisters, and, um, and they were all believers from a, from a godly family, but their parents had died. And, these, these, um, and they were very poor, these five, and they lived together. And they moved into this, the first floor of, of this house that had been an abandoned house because they were very poor. And they li- moved in the first floor of this house. Um, and, and when they moved into that house, um, crazy, 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 crazy things began to happen. And um, the youngest sister um, began to experience very significant signs of demonic oppression and influence. Again, I don't want to um, uh, go into details probably because it'll scare some people and then also it's not relevant for most people. And it's not, this is not that relevant. But, uh, and then Johan, through this event, he was a total newbie, didn't know anything. Uh, like, I mean, you know, <laughs> lots of us. So, so but, but he, through this experience, began to learn about spiritual warfare, and he began to learn about casting out demons, he began to learn about all this stuff. And, uh, and, and it, it, it took um, 
the, the main part of the battle against these demons took him about a year and a half. Um, but the story lasts, I think, about three, about three years. Like from the time that he moves there, um, uh, three or four years, from the time that he moves there until the time where uh, like the, he has final victory over, um, over the demonic force that is in this house and comes come against his family, it takes him about three years. And in the meantime, it is in, incredibly intense. They find occultic uh, objects. Um, uh, uh, people can hear screams at night coming out of the house. Like not just like people in the house, but like all over the place. They can hear footsteps. I mean, it's really, really weird and bad. Not not good stuff. And um, uh, there's a few times where the young lady who's who's possessed uh, actually ends up dying, um, and is raised back to life. Um, Johann Boomer and and his 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 some of um, the people in his church they set prayer watches, and sometimes he's praying literally the entire day, like from sometime in the morning to late at night. And sometimes he's praying all night, and he's he's constantly with her. He's moving her to different houses. I mean, they're just trying to do anything they can. They're seeing doctors or you're taking medicine, like anything they can to, to, to do this and, and to take care of this. He um, is a, uh, as men were in those days, a fairly academic individual. He's not prone to, um, he's not prone to exaggeration. And you can read his account and you just find, okay, yeah, he's not, he's not a dramatic person at all. He's very, like, matter of fact. And he, um, within the first, uh, I think, few months, he casts out that he, the demons that he can identify and name 425 uh, or so. And then after that, um, he thought that the war was over and um, it lasted a little bit, um, a little bit of peace. Um, and then one day, another, another spirit takes over and he says, well, there's 1,067 more of us. And he says, how are you going to win? And he says, oh my God, this is like impossible. So they just, they just keep going, they keep going. They just keep withdrawing. Like that guy with the legion of demons that Jesus casts out like all at once, be like Jesus. <laughs> um, but, um, but so then he just like pulls him out and pulls him out and pulls him out and it takes 18 months for him to do this. And uh, finally he gets the, the, the final one and, and, and he's like, you need to come out in Jesus' name and he remembers his final battle and, 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 and finally the last demon like, is like, no, I don't want to go in this New Year's Eve, I think 1843 or something like that. Um, and finally the last demon has to go, he forces him out and he's just like praying and fasting and there's the whole village like they're praying and fasting and, um, and this becomes a tourist attraction while they're dealing with this demon because so many people have heard the screams and the stories and people are coming from all around town. They want to, some people want to stay in the house, they want to hear the screams, you know, they've never anything like it, um, like it's a real haunted house, you know, and so it's become very well known in Germany, like, like in this area in Germany, and um, the, so the last one comes out, and before he comes out, the demon screams, Jesus is Victor, and, and then he screams it twice, and the whole town hears it, and then the demon leaves, and then she's totally and finally free. And um, so you can go read the account. There's, there's books about it. But, but the, and, and this story has become like the, one of the foundational stories that pretty much everybody learning their deliverance ministry has read for the last 150 years because it just t- it touches on so many different points. But, but that's not the part that I'm interested in for today's purposes. The interesting thing is what happens next. So New Year's Eve, I think it's 1843, the last demon leaves. And then they just go about church life as normal. Everybody's tired. He's tired. He's ready for a break. You know, so they just do normal church services. And then crazy things begin to happen. In mid-February of 1844, about six or eight weeks after they get victory over the demonic spirit, one day he's at church. And a, a young man who doesn't go to church walks into his, 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 I think his office or his house, something like that. And, um, and this is a guy that everybody knows is a sinner. He's always the one at the bar getting drunk. He's always, you know, like, like everybody knows that he's a bad, a bad personality. Um, nobody really likes him. And, and he doesn't come to church. He doesn't like, you know, he's just, he's not a good person. 
And uh, Johann is, is shocked to see him, you know, in the middle of February. And, and he sits down and he said, um, what do you want? And he says, um, I just have to confess my sins. He says, I just, I just have to confess my sins. And, and so he said, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so the young man just sits down and he just, just, he just confesses his sins like a river. Just rah, 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 and he's sitting there, he's crying, he's a total mess. And just, he confesses his sins and he gets right with God. And he turns himself to God and yells, well, that was an unusual experience. That's an unusual experience. A few days, I can't remember how long later, another person comes. And it's the same thing. He's never reached him. He's never preached to him. Nobody, there's no crusade. There's no outreach. And he says, I've just been, I've just, I was just going through it and I was just convicted of my sins and I had to come and I have to confess. So he sits down on his sofa and he says, oh, okay. I'm so, I mean, he says, well, two in a row. This is, this is weird. I mean, this is, well, at least the church is growing. You know, like, this is confessing sins. And then soon it, it is a movement that begins to take over the, the, the village. Church people, non-church people, everybody wants to confess their sins. And he's waking up at six o'clock in the morning when he wakes up, there's a line outside his house of people waiting on him to wake up so they can sit down and confess their sins to him. And he begins to say, don't you guys know that you can just confess your sins like to Jesus? Like in private, in the person who says, no, 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 that's not enough. We have to confess to somebody. Do we have to confess? We ha- no, we can't. That's not enough for us. We have to confess to somebody. And th- these people are not working. They're waiting all day long. And they're weeping the entire time while they're sitting in his living room. There's a mass of people full in his living room while he's, he's listening to their sins one at a time. And there's so many sins and it takes them a whole day to get through like 15 or 16 people. And he's getting to the point where there's a dozen people, 15 people, 16 people every single day. From 6 a.m. to 9 p.m., his house is full of people waiting on him to confess their sins. The village grocer has people coming into his store and leaving coins on the register of people that stole stuff from the grocery store years ago. And they said, we just, we just convicted. We can't, we can't go on anymore. And so people will just walk in, they'll drop a coin on the desk, and they'll walk out. There are people that come, and they'll just confess to the police, I murdered two people 17 years ago, like whenever, and I, I buried them in this forest, and nobody ever knew, you know, and, and, and don't, you know, you know, people that got divorced, committed adultery, they, like, they reconcile marriages, and um, the, like, the people stop going to the bars, crime stops, and all at the same time, Johan is just inundated with, like, with people. By mid, I think it's uh, mid-March, he had heard confessions from about 150 people, and then by the next week, he recorded again, he said, 225 now, there's 225 people that have proactively, nobody's asked them, nobody's invited them, they force themselves into your office. They're like knocking at the door. Please, please, will you meet with me? Will you hear my sins? He's trying to have church. He has a, a, a Sunday service, and he has two churches. They're like kind of next to each other in, in town. His, his Sunday service is in the middle of the week. I think it's um, maybe Thursday afternoon. I don't remember all the details. Thursday afternoon, his children's service. He can't run his children's service because he's trying to do his children's ministry and things like that. And there's people lining up outside the door. They're trying to sneak into children's service so they can grab him afterwards so they can confess their sins. This is madness. Like, it's just it's sweeping over the town. Soon people from other towns want to come and confess their sins to him. And he says, no oh, no, 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 we can't do this. You know, you go back to your towns, you confess to your pastor in your town. They said, no, you know, we, we could, but like, we just want to confess to you. He said, no, 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 draw the line, go back to your town, go to your pastor, confess your sins to your pastor. And soon it begins to start in the entire area in Germany. There's just people that are coming. Some of them heard the breakthrough about the demonized woman. They want to, you know, 
hear the story and see the house and, 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 and some just, have, you come to experience the conviction of the Lord and they go back and they take conviction to their own towns. People that are, are sick are getting healed. He doesn't have any training in healing ministry. He doesn't, like, like you want to, he doesn't have, it's not, it's not, there's no grid. He went to seminary, you know. He's like, he's like, training for this. But people are just getting healed. They're just getting healed, like, off the streets. They're getting healed walking to church. Um, tumors are dropping off of people. There's, he, like, somebody, one person came up to him in church, I think, and asked for prayer. And uh, it was a tumor or something like that. And he puts his hand um, on the person. And he doesn't have any experience of healing prayer. And something, he feels in the spirit, something like, like a liquid, just, um, you know, like, a, like when a woman's water breaks. It's just like, like, just, just poof, like it just drops out. And he felt that, like in the spirit, like almost physically, but he couldn't touch it. Just something just dropped out of the person. And they're suddenly and instantaneously healed. There's no training. There's no training. And he can't stop this. He can't stop this. It's, it's like everybody in town wants to confess their sins until like, and when they confess their sins, they get free. But it's just like anybody that sins, just they just want to confess their sins. And this just becomes a ruckus. I mean, there's just hundreds of people and they're coming and they just, they just, everybody wants to get right with God. Everybody wants to get right with God. I, I don't have, um, I, I need to like wrap this up. So like, it's, it's not like, I am convinced that this is not that hard. Well, no, I'm convinced that this is very hard. But the hard part is not the part that we think is hard. <laughs> I think we spend a lot of time and effort, and this, like, when I say we, I mean me, okay? Like, this is me. Brother Daniel is just a fool. Like, I spent a lot of time trying to get, like, you know, um, a few people saved, and we're like, oh, if we just hand out a thousand tracks, then maybe 10 of them will stick. <laughs> you know, 990 will be thrown away, but at least 10 will like, and yay. And, and there is some of that. Like, you know, you do have those things and not everybody accepts and not everybody. But, but there, there is also this reality. And I don't want you to think that this is the only way it can happen, that it can't happen in any way. But, there's, but there is also this reality that God has called us um, to declare the victory of Christ. To say this, the Lord is my banner is our banner. And it's a banner of war. It's not a banner of peace. Because God does have enemies. They're not, they're, like Paul said, it's not flesh and blood. It's powers and principalities. It's things in the heavenly places that stop the children of men from living before God the way that God created them to live before God. And if you and I don't do anything about it, that's the way we will continue. But if you can break the power of darkness, you don't need to be like, well, let me convince you of your sins, brother. Like, it, the, the conviction becomes natural when the darkness is broken. And the healing becomes natural when the darkness is broken. And the freedom becomes natural when the darkness is broken. I don't know that that's the way it goes everywhere, but I know that that's the way it goes in some places, enough places that it's, we have to get serious about it. Well, we can't just pray, you know, Lord, give me more presents. Lord, bless my job. Lord, help me, you know, f find, you know, whatever, a, a, a new PlayStation for myself. Like, <laughs> there's, there's, those things are fine, but, but, um, but I, I, I wonder if um, Johan learned a lot about prayer and fasting. He says, just keep fasting. He says, the, the, the incredible thing about fasting is nobody can explain why it works. But this is what I know. When I don't fast, I'm arguing with the devil for many hours before it comes out. When I do fast, I just, it's just easy. He said, when I fast, he says, sometimes I'm able to cast demons out even when I'm not there. I'm just at church, and like somebody tells me, oh, she's like, you know, she, uh, another demon came on, and I was just like, be gone in Jesus, and it'll just go. And she's like, oh, distance casting. It saves me a walk, <laughs> you know? 
It's, 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 uh, so like by prayer and fasting, right, which is what Jesus told, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Those are the weapons of our warfare. But if you pick them up, like there is great freedom that can come on your life, my life, and on the lives of the people that we want to reach. And this stuff can take years. It took him years to get to the bottom of that hellhole that, that, that existed in his little town. His town, little town wasn't, I don't think it was special among all the towns in Germany. I think it was just, for whatever reason, God used him as an example to stir up the work of, so that to expose the way that this works. And many, many, many people have learned from his life since then. Many missionaries, I mean, his book is like very, very, very widely read by, by people learning deliverance ministry. It's one of the standard um, texts that people use to help them understand what's going on, how it works. But it's just incredible. It's incredible that conviction can be natural to people. It's, convic- it's incredible that, that fish can, can jump into the boat on their own, that your friends can stop you on the street and say, I know you're a Christian. I, I am burdened by the fact that I am a sinner without hope and I need to confess my sin to somebody. Would you listen to me? Like, like can you, like, that's not some far off. That has happened on this planet, in Western society, in Western society. And I don't know, I, just knowing that it's possible, I, I, can't, I can't settle for anything less, you know? We just have to keep believing, keep pressing in until it becomes real. All right, I need to stand up. Thank you, Jesus. Let's um, call our, our band up here to play some things, and we'll let Esther do some ministry if she wants. I don't know if you want to do anything. All right, come on, honey. Um, I'm just going to pray and then we'll um, transition, 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 transition. Father, we thank you for your spirit in this place. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that anything that is of you that you would bear witness to. And anything that is not of you, Father, we just um, ask that you would erase it out of this church. But the things that are of you, oh God, we pray. Please, God. Please, God, anoint it. Let it bear fruit in our lives. Let it bear fruit in our lives. Because when we believe that you are the banner over us, and we believe there is victory that you have called us to, and we believe, oh Lord, that through prayer and fasting and humility and picking up the sword when we need to pick up the sword, that you've given us breakthrough in all these things. Father, we thank you that you are king and you are judge. And Jesus, you are victor. You are the one who has won. You have won. You have won. I love you, God. We honor you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.